Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover. And today we are talking about conversational AI and digital currency. Okay, so in the news this week, there has been um, a An lot of talk. An announcement from Google. That's right. This this Google announcement, which was pretty mind-blowing, I thought. I don't know if you guys have seen the video yet, but there's this video out of this thing called Google Duplex. Google Duplex is a technology for conducting uh, natural conversations to carry out tasks over the phone. And uh, conversational AI isn't really super great yet. So what they did to get around that is they made it very domain specific. So it really just can make calls to places primarily for scheduling. So it can call a restaurant, say, and schedule a reservation, which is one of the demos that you can see online. Um, and in fact, there's, there's a few audio clips of this online, which we could just play right now, actually. How can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. Okay, that was the first one, and here is the second demo, which, as you can hear, gets a little more complicated. See how may I hear you? Hi, um, I'd like to reserve a table for Wednesday the 7th. For seven people? Um, it's for four people. Four people? When? Um, Today? Next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Oh, actually, we leave here for like opera, like uh, five people. For few, four people, you can come. How long is the wait usually to uh, be seated? For when tomorrow or weekday or? For next Wednesday, uh, the seventh. Oh no, it's not too busy. You 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 can come for four people, okay? Oh, I gotcha. Thanks. Yep. Bye bye. Yeah. So, uh. We're going to talk about the reaction to this in, in a moment because there's a little bit of controversy around this and, and Google's taking some flack for, for unveiling this technology yeah, the way that they, they did. Yeah. Um, so let's put that on hold for a second mm -hmm. and, and just talk about the technology itself because as a tech demo, it's actually quite impressive. Yeah, it's the first really impressive tech demo I've seen in a little while. I feel like it's been a, a little bit of a lull uh, before there's something that felt like as much of a breakthrough as this. And even though it is narrow in domain, the quality... Of conversation is really something uh, to behold. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I, in, in addition to listening to the various clips, I read Google's AI blog about it, and they talked about some of the challenges that you have to overcome to make, you know, a conversational AI that can actually 
converse with a human in a natural fashion. Mm. Um, and and some of those things are the fact that you know, uh, you, people do many things you know differently when they're just talking to each other. They speak in very complex sentences, which can be really hard for a computer to parse. You know, because people do things all the time, like correct themselves mid sentence, or they're more verbose than necessary. Um, they'll just drop out words completely and the other person will still understand what they mean from context. Mm -hmm. Um, the same words will have different meanings. One of the examples they gave in the, uh, the blog was the phrase, okay, for four, which specifically in the context Mm -hmm, of a scheduling conversation could mean, okay, for a table for four, if it's a reservation or or it could be four o'clock. Right. Right. Um, I mean, could possibly even mean the fourth of the month. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of challenges there, and from judging from the demos, anyways, uh, they seem to have overcome a lot of these in a fairly convincing manner. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable to me how well it understood even the uh, non-native English speaker on the phone. And it can handle things like uh, requests for elaboration. So, so like if the human asks, like, what, what did you actually mean by that? And it can give a longer answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it can handle interruptions, like hold on a second or request for it to start over from the beginning. Um, it can handle pauses, you know, if it gets told to be left on hold for a while or to hold on a second while the, the human on the other end accesses a scheduling programmer. Yeah, yeah. and it even responds with like an mm-hmm or like, like it's a weird human-like sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even feel like language. It's really kind of shocking when it does that. Well, and this is where we get into the some of the things that I think are grabbing headlines and, and triggering people's, you know, creepiness alarms, which are some of its more human traits, specifically... Um, what Google calls speech disfluencies, which are ums, <laughs> okay. and, ums and ahs and hmms. Sure. Like, you know, things people use to fill space when they're trying to think of what to say. Um, so it has a lot of those worked into its speech. Yeah. Well, and I have learned doing this podcast with you and trying to cut many of those out of our earlier, more edited episodes. Yeah. No, that you use them a lot. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, mean, I don't mean you. I mean, everyone does. I use them a lot. We we all use them a lot. Yeah, so this is a case where it will insert those in. Now, interestingly, what I read on the blog implied that they're not... They're inserting them in for a few reasons, right? So one would be, um, and we'll get into this later, you might think that they're inserting them as part of their deception, you know, to make it seem more like a human rather than a robot. Right. Um, which I think, you know, broadly speaking, that's correct. But there's also a more direct technical reason. If I understand it correctly, um, what they're doing is they're combining different sound units to generate this. So they have a bunch of, you know, pre-recorded things from an actor, presumably, uh, Yeah, uh, I would guess. Um, like constituent syllables or vowel sounds or something yeah or even longer phrases that are used a lot i mean again this is domain specific to scheduling so they could have a human sit in a studio and probably say almost everything you might right 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 all the ten thousand or so words or something you need right 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 so they're combining these things but as we also know from doing our podcast and editing it if you try to edit two you know disparate elements sometimes that are even just you know 30 seconds apart um even from the same person it often doesn't sound right or natural because right. their intonation, their volumes, their pacing has changed from one moment in the conversation to another. Right. So you can imagine that fitting these sound units together, you could slam easily slam two together that just don't fit. And I think that's what you hear in other conversational AIs when they don't sound that 
believable. And even this one, you hear a tiny bit of that still, I think, although less than in, in previous um, AIs that I've heard. Right. Well, yeah. in the ums, you can tell, actually, if you go and listen to them carefully, you can tell that they're being used specifically as a bridge mm. when they have two sound units that are different enough in intonation that putting them together would not flow. They, the um, they just sort of insert between and it acts kind of as... Um, palate know, cleanser. Yeah, it kind of resets. Yeah, that's smart. And it seems to be actually pretty effective. So that's, I think, a, a, a cool trick. And then also, um, you know, the um serve the purpose of filling just space. That and, I noticed. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was what my first guess when you started talking about this was they they uh, seem to use it to hold the line at appropriate moments. Well, there's like there's two different kinds of ums, right? There's right. the long ums that people put when they're trying to think of what to say. And there's those quick, uh, you know, short ums that are inserted between words. So it, it makes uses of both. Right, right. Um, and then the other thing that it does to be more natural is it adjusts its latency on purpose. So it turns out we expect a faster answer to a simpler question or of a simpler course. statement like hello. Yes. Um, and if we ask a longer question, we expect a slower response. And it actually it... They have to correct in both directions. They have to make sure they're fast on the things where people expect speed. Right. And they actually have to artificially slow it down on, you know, for the opposite situation. Interesting. Yeah. So that, those are all aspects of the technology that so I thought we're already were already bottlenecking the AI with our slow ability to understand. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fascinating. I, I think this is just really cool because um, it's, this is a specific task that is a it's a very human task of like making a phone call and setting mm -hmm. um, an appointment for you. Um, and of course there've been online booking systems for a long time, but lots of businesses don't use them or they're too complicated to set up or something like that. So the idea that they have uh, just taken this job off the table of the things your, you know, your, your, job having human assistant has to do for you is pretty interesting to me. Right. Cause the way this would be used is you would ask your Google assistant to make you an appointment. Right. And it would actually make the call for you at an appropriate time. Yeah. In the background, possibly asynchronously to when you ask for it. I mean, you might ask for it at 2am and it knows maybe to wait until 8am the next day to call. Right. It can look up their hours. So of course. Yeah. Um, the, Another use case though, that they mentioned, which I, I want to bring up because there's some interesting implications of this is that of actually gathering data for Google in general. So they mention um, the, the use case of, you know, customers will often call businesses to inquire about information that's not available online. And the example they give is hours of operation during a holiday. Right. So their theory is that Duplex could call, mm -hmm. get that information once, and then put it on the internet. So now that information that wasn't online is online. So it's actually part it's it's acting more like a web crawler or or you know crawling the real world or or I guess it's kind of like the yeah. cars that drive around taking pictures for maps right? right it's using the conversational AI to go out in the world to build the data that's online which is different and an interesting way to use it right right yeah that's um it's becoming part of Google's sensory apparatus and helping them build their their mirror world yeah and you yeah. could imagine um. So the, the weird case that immediately popped into my head that is not relevant to this exact technology, because, again, this is focused on scheduling, from what I understand. Right. But you could imagine a more futuristic version of this, say, calling a professor at a university who's an expert in some field 
you know, posing as a graduate student or a reporter or some asking some clarification on some question that's missing from Google's database <laughs> that people have been asking a lot about and then using that to fill in a gap in its knowledge, say, for example. I mean, this is the kind of thing you could theoretically have as a result of this down the line. Right, right. Everybody's just getting really polite phone calls from this happy robot who just needs to know all these random things. Yeah, I like it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned polite. Yeah. Because the tone... I mean, this. What's funny is like, once you build this AI, there's it has a personality of some kind. Yes. Right. And the personalities of these things, they're sort of they just sort of sound like, I don't know, they sound like what you'd expect. They sound like Bay Area white people trying to get a dinner reservation. I don't know. Yeah, they do sound like the assistants of tech entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I heard one. They're obsequious and polite and. Well, but I don't uh, know how kind of insistent. I don't too. think they're actually that obsequious or polite, though. No. Um. So you'll hear them say things like, first of all, they have very casual slang things. Sometimes. They are like, very casual. Like I heard OK Awesome in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but uh, they don't actually say please or certain like conversational easers and things that you could use to be extra polite. They haven't gone extra hard in that direction. Maybe mm. I'm not sure why. And the reason I bring that up is around the same time that Google announced this duplex technology, mm. they also were talking about some other features for its assistant software, which is some sort of setting that would where the assistant would correct you. And when you ask it to do things, it would ask you to use please or ask for the magic word. And apparently this is something that parents have asked for, for their <laughs> kids interacting with these technologies because they don't want the kids to get in the habit of ordering around people yes that's hilarious <laughs> so it is interesting that you know on on the one side they have a technology that requires you to say please to get something from their ai but then their ai is not using similar words on the other end right yeah no there's a kind of clipped business-like approach to how it speaks that's right it's you know it's in the middle right it's like yeah. casual but it's it's neither overly polite nor is it insulting obviously right um but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it says like gotcha a lot and things like that, like kind of, yeah, casual words, but still very like upbeat and um, I don't know, gave me a polite sense. Maybe not. Maybe polite's the wrong word. Maybe just like sort of um, friendly, easygoing. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. It does sound am amenable. It's, right? it's a bit Californian sounding. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, um, obviously, these are choices that are being made. And uh, we can, you know, criticize Google for these particular choices. And in fact, many people are. Um, so I think at this point we should get into the, the reaction to this, which has not been great. Yeah. Well, so there is a bunch of knee jerk reaction to it right away about, you know, the creepiness factor and disclosure and all of that. And I think Google pretty quickly just said, oh, yeah, we're going to it'll it'll tell you it's a robot when it calls up. Right. So the, the biggest like issue is the issue of deception, right? The way it's presented in the tech demos. Yeah. It is that it basically could trick you. I mean, you heard it. Yeah. You hear it calling people. It doesn't seem like the people are aware that it's an AI. Right. Uh, and you know, it's convincing enough that you could imagine again, it's not like the Turing test where you're on guard expecting, you know, that it could be an AI or not. And you're trying to judge. I mean, these are just unsuspecting people answering the phone it's good enough that you're not going to really second guess it at the level that it's operating at. 
So you could easily interact with this thing and have no clue. And that is how they presented it. Now, like you said, they did backtrack very quickly and say, oh, we're going to let people know up front. It's not clear to me whether they decided that after seeing the reaction or if that was always the case. It seems that way. Um, And some people have even been, I think, offended that they like even tested it on like unsuspecting, you know, receptionists. Um, uh, uh, I find that silly, (laughs) to be honest. I mean... um, yeah, testing it, I guess, is different than, than widely deploying this. I'm, I'm certain that they did quite a lot of internal testing first, and at a certain point, you just have to get some wild tests on something like this. No one can be harmed if it goes wrong. You just go, why am I talking to a robot and hang up? Uh, actual robots call my phone all the damn time. So, I don't know. I, to me, that's very silly to worry about. I get if this becomes a widely available product that you might want disclosure built in, and I especially get that if the product is customizable enough that it can be used to like scam people or something like that, because it's not clear right now that it could do that. It seems like it's pretty limited in what it could do. Well, that's a different domain, right? So this is the scheduling domain, conversational AI, but you could have the, uh, the con artist domain AI. (laughs) That's the thing is how different is a telephone scam where you're phishing people's information from a scheduling event it's not that different i don't know how uh, again i don't know how like i'm pretty sure this doesn't have any customizable things you just say make me a haircut appointment at 10 a.m and it Mm -hmm. does that but if you could say you know call this number and uh get the lady to give me her social security number and it could understand that and do it uh that's that's where it maybe gets um worrying to me not not necessarily where it's at now but that doesn't seem um like that far away in terms of capability well and we're definitely going to be in that world one way or another at some point where uh you know it's not necessarily going to just be google you know an average programmer might be able to coddle something together that does a pretty good job of this and if they put it to nefarious use where it tricks people then you know that's a separate crime that you would have to deal with um but uh as for this case here automating that kind of crime uh, so that you can try it on many, many more people at once, you know, could be uh, sig- a significant thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, but I, but what I'm saying is, like, that is a crime. Sure. So we already have, like, language to describe that that's a problem, right? Defrauding people is wrong if you're using a high-tech way to do it. Right. Um, I mean, they do this over email already. Yeah, yeah. It's just one more way you could attack people, that's all. But, you know, when you have a very large company, you know, uh, like Google, that's most of us interact with several times a day um you know the ethical implications are a little bit different right and uh you know i'm sort of of two minds on this right because first of all i think that the deception thing is is problematic i mean i don't like i don't like what that says in general about you know creating a world of uncertainty like a philip k dick world where you don't know if you're talking to a real person or not i feel like just this sort of Contributing to the general undermining of knowing what's real and what isn't seems to me like not a great result that could come of this being used a lot. Yeah, you don't want to be interrogating everybody who calls you with like the um, <laughs> the Blade Runner test to see if they're, you know. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like putting an extra psychological burden on everybody yeah. if that's the world we build. So yeah. I, I on that, however, at the same time, there's utility to the deception 
right? Because we do get robocalls already. We've all right. gotten them. And most of us, I would assume, and certainly myself, when I hear a robot speaking, I immediately hang up. Me too, yeah. I mean, I might listen for a second to see like if it's just reminding me of a dental appointment or something that might actually be useful. But as soon as I can discern that it's not something I care about, I hang up. And sometimes just immediately anyways. Mm-hmm. So you've got to assume that Google's thinking that that's the case. So how are they going to, you know, if they do what they're saying and they put the disclaimer up front, hi, this is uh, a Google robot calling to make, you know, a appointment for my client, right? If that's going to get a lot of people initially to just hang up and it's going to cause a lot more failure. Now, eventually, I mean, obviously businesses want business. So when if they get wise that they're getting these calls, then they'll just start you know, accepting them because that's how they get work. Right. But you can imagine it being a problem to deploying this if people, you know, hear the disclaimer and just like, I'm done with this right off the bat. Yeah, which would be even more likely to happen if like regular old scammers start using that um, as their scam, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, if uh, this because the scam call that calls me now sometimes is like, this is Lisa from Google search or whatever. Right. I mean, this is one of those scams. So you hang up on it. I don't know what they say after that, but, um, it's, it's, it's not from Google, obviously, right. It's a scam of some kind. They're trying to get your information. Right. So they could just, I mean, if that happens, then that really, um, starts to erode their ability to disclose who they are and, and get the job done. Yeah. So, and, and then the other challenge too, is that, if they want people to interact with it conversationally, mm-hmm. then it also helps if you sort of trick people. Um, I know when I know I'm talking to a robot, even one that's of a decent quality, mm-hmm. I just talk differently. Right. I'll be like, yes, four o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll just enunciate more. Cause I just, you know, I just, I just don't trust that you it's going to get things it right. You, right. So yeah. I have a clipped, awkward conversation. Now, and it's interesting, they could have devised a different version of this technology that just embraced that, that had, you know, like, for example, they could have made one that called, had a stylized voice Mm -hmm. that was maybe somewhere like a cartoon character, Mm -hmm. you know, between robot and human. Sure. um, That immediately told you that it was a robot. Yeah. And if you interacted to it in a clipped robotic manner, just requesting information from it, it would respond. Sure. But if you talk to it like it was a person, it would respond in this more graceful way that they've programmed it to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure why they didn't consider that route. I guess it would have been, you know, a less impressive demo. I don't know. Well, I think they're just trying to fit it into the world as it is rather than, you know, I mean, I think that's just their philosophy about it. Whether that's a good one or not, I don't know. I mean, generally speaking, I'm not uh, part of the outraged masses on this, uh, you know, and it doesn't sound like you are either. Again, no. again, the deception concerns me a little bit. If they're going to correct that, which it sounds like they are, then I'm basically fine. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if they yeah, if they're if they want to do that for PR reasons, I think that makes sense. I don't care whether it uh, announces itself as a robot or not, as long as it does what it says it's doing, as long as it's honest about how it's dealing in the world like if it's calling up and pretending to be somebody in order to suck data up for google that's that's weird to me but if it's calling up and saying i'm setting an appointment for my client you know and that's what it's doing i don't know who cares if it's a robot or not um uh, what i do think it is pushing toward uh is an eventual future we we touched on this i think in our previous thing about 
perfectly faking audio and video mm-hmm. um, is the idea that like eventually it's all going to be computers talking, right? Like sure. uh, everyone it calls is going to also be using this product or a similar product. The next step is for a business to have a automated answering system that can, you know, take people's requests for reservations. I mean, we already have these, but they can do it in a conversational style. Right. And then you have two robots talking to each other very rapidly. Yeah. And it seems like that's just a version of this robot too. I mean, it just seems like it'll be a short, the flip side. Yeah. Yeah. Short time before Google's business app division has a version of this for the business that, is a virtual receptionist and does the exact same thing, except uh, it takes the reservation and keeps the calendar. Um, and then at that point, we're at a, uh, it doesn't matter how they talk anymore. <laughs> they can talk whoever is most computationally effective for them. Maybe they disclose to each other very quickly that they're robots and then switch to binary, <laughs> you know, switch to not bothering to generate audio files and send them through the network since that's crazy uh, for two computers to do. They send some like weird, like unobtrusive audio signature that they can each recognize. And then they, yeah. Then they yeah. Start. Or even if they just say, um, hi, I'm the Google robot because you know, because of this disclosure thing. And then the other one's like, Oh, you're a robot too. And then they immediately, <laughs> you know, switch into, psh, 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 you know, uh, just a fax making, machine making noises. modem sounds modem, at each other. Modem yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I mean, it just seems to me like the short term expansion of this is scheduling becomes seamless and automated and just stops being a thing that like people worry about. Now, I did see some typical sort of you know, lamenting and hand-wringing about the fact that uh, this sort of eliminates an interaction that, you know, small businesses might have with customers, you know, a human interaction and so on. You know, I mean, people will adapt. It doesn't concern me too much. And you can still call business if it's relevant for you to call. Obviously, I wouldn't, you know, assign my Google robot to make, you know, as an appointment that was very complicated, right? Where I needed to, you know, sketch out exactly what I needed. So I think that that, that concern I saw seems a little bit silly to me. Yeah. It seems like it can handle even pretty complicated requests, but, um, I, I just think that's silly. I think this is one of the interactions that's kind of a hassle and not one of the ones that's good. Like, you know, going into the haircut and actually getting your hair cut by a human, that makes sense to me. That's like a an interaction where the human value is, even if there was a robot that cut hair, I might not want it, you know? Um, but calling the salon and making the appointment is not the fun part. It's not the part where I'm getting a lot of human connection. No, no, I'm just no. sort of subjecting somebody to a low-wage job where they don't really provide that much value. And, you know, their job is to smile at me and it's a little bit awkward and strange um i think if we you know obviously it chips away at employment for people and that might be a net bad i don't know but um other than that i see nothing but wrong with it yeah yeah so so just sort of the itemize these objections though right? yeah we, we, sure we've got deception we've got the creepiness factor which again is just kind of a yeah fair enough whatever i mean, I mean yeah. that's you know that's just google's you know, failing again to, you know, brand itself in a way that doesn't creep people out. You know, that's not news for them. No, Um, but it's not, I don't think it's an ethical problem if it's creeps out some people. It's just, maybe it won't get adopted if that's truly a problem. Yeah. Um, So there's the deception, the creepiness, this like loss of human interaction, which we've heard with every technology that comes out that handles communication, I think is kind of not really an issue. 
Um, a fourth thing I saw is that this interacts interestingly. This is solvable as a problem, I think, but it interacts interestingly with eavesdropping laws because for this to work, it has to be recording um, at least temporarily what the human says because that's just how computers process things. Yes. Right? When a computer hears, it is also recording. Recording and hearing are the same thing for a computer. Yes. Right, right. Which, yes. which is an interesting thing about digital interactions that we've discussed before. Right. Um, so, you know... And there's many, many states and jurisdictions where, you know, there's laws against recording a conversation without letting people know. But, Including this one. Yeah, but the but the fix for that already exists. It's just you tell them. You just... So, I mean, it's kind of fixed by the same disclaimer, right? They'd probably have to say, hi, I'm a Google robot. This call is being recorded. Yeah, the state of California requires me to inform you that I am a robot and that this call is being recorded. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if anybody's still on the line, then it can make an appointment for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> that sounds so terrifying. I mean, I'm not scared of technology at all. I might hang up on that. There will be a lot of people that will hang up, though. I mean, they'll just be like, are you kidding me? Screw those Google robots. It's going to feel good to hang up on a robot. I yeah. Don't know. I mean, so that, I mean, that's a, it's going to limit this adoption, I think, if they put that disclaimer, which is why I think they were planning not to. I would suspect that they were until they saw the backlash, they weren't going to do that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if um, <laughs> if it gets hung up on if it will call back again and not disclose the yeah. second time. Now you seem to draw a distinction earlier. It seemed like uh -huh. you were more okay with the deception if it's on, if it's doing operating on behalf of a client to do something. Oh, I just meant if it's being honest about what job it's doing to the person it's talking to. I see. So like, I don't care if it discloses it's a robot. I, I'm, I'm much more concerned about if it's surreptitiously gathering information, um, rather than just doing a direct information task such as. So the situation that I posited earlier where it, you know, might call a professor posing as a grad student yeah that would be unacceptable i just don't like the posing part right it could call the professor and say like this is the google information robot i would love to ask you some questions um would you mind talking to me about this topic you know that's fine but yeah if it's like hi i'm lisa i'm a grad student at uc davis <laughs> you know i'm i read your book in my class and like you, you look know, pretty sexy in your author pick definitely yeah if it starts flirting that's way over the line yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you gotta shut that computer off <laughs> sure i think i agree with that distinction Pull the ram chips out while it's running and to like be fair 2001 there's... style <laughs> sure yeah. And to be fair, I don't think there's any indication that they're planning to do that. No, but, no, no. But I mean, again, one way or another, we're entering that world. So, you know, big companies with something to lose are probably not going to engage in this stuff because they don't want to deal with the PR nightmare that goes with it. But people are going to be using these things left and right to, to fish for data. Yeah, well, and if you're the, um, you know, uh, Chinese military intelligence or or the CIA or... Something like that, a technology like this could let you uh, fish for all kinds of information. No, and the spoofing of people could get real dark, And right? I mean, you could get a call that appears to be your friend yeah. in trouble. That sounds a lot like their speech patterns using some of the other technology that we talked about uh, in previous podcasts that's actually synthesizing speech. Um, so, you know, this can go to some dark places. This shows that we're getting there faster and faster. Yeah. So what this technology doesn't 
show is like, or, or I don't think shows, um, is like a tremendous breadth of situations that it can adapt to. But it seems like if the situation varies within, um, you know, reasonably limited parameters, they can make a version of this technology to handle any narrow situation you might imagine. And a a con artist robot, you know, might be, have a relatively narrow range of possibilities exactly or a spy fishing bot same thing like it calls diplomats and it threatens them with one of a handful of threats and it just sees who responds so basically yeah if you hook this up to the speech synthesis technology that we talked about in the fakeable audio and video episode a while back yeah um you have uh, in the hands of somebody who wants to use this for nefarious purposes you have a pretty powerful tool yeah yeah um so, yeah, I, I think that's all I want to say about that at this point. We're going to keep checking in on this issue, though. I, I it, it definitely... I mean, if we missed any objections to this particular Google technology, let us know. If you're personally outraged and think that we should be more so, I'd like to hear why. But uh, mostly, I think this is exciting in the sense of it's a cool demo, but, you know, it does point to these larger issues that we're going to have to deal with at some point. I just don't, you know, solely blame Google for that future. I mean, that future's coming. No, I just think, you know, uh, Google and other companies like them are going to automate the suite of services that human assistants do right now. And that's going to happen soon. So, you know, that is what it is. There'll still be some human assistants for status reasons, but I think that we're going to see that functionality get democratized and possibly that job category shrink. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about digital currency? Yeah. Let's talk about digital currency. So we've talked about this before a bit in our Future of Money episode, but, you know, it's... um, Which was a while ago, I got to say. Yeah, it was a while ago. It was before this, like, latest real rush of interest in cryptocurrencies, but I actually kind of don't want to talk about cryptocurrencies That's the thing is, sorry if this is a bait and switch, because people (laughs) probably heard digital currency at the top of the episode and thought we're going to finally talk about, you know, blockchain. Why I should buy Bitcoin. And ICOs and all this stuff. But um, it's not going to be that. I mean, maybe someday we'll address that issue. I'm not... I think neither Ted or I are are super bullish about that technology. And I don't feel knowledgeable enough really to even say. I mean, I have some opinions, but there's some research that would have to go into a a proper episode on that. Yeah. But what we want to talk about is strictly just money that's digital in the sense that it doesn't have any physical uh, manifestation at all. Right. So this is the broader category that includes all cryptocurrency, but also includes like any currency that is just digital at its base. Right. And and many of our transactions increasingly are digital anyways. I have this interaction at least once a week because I like to pay for things in cash because I often get paid in cash. So I just have cash in my wallet that I got to spend. And I'll go into a place and uh, I'll order some food or I'll order a drink or whatever it is. And they're already asking me for my credit card or they're already opening a tab for me. And I'll have to say, oh, cash is what I'm paying with. And they'll, they'll act kind of flummoxed and surprised because... I'm, you know, the only person in several days that's maybe paid in cash. It's so, I mean, already, you know, in certain, you know, areas, uh, in, in cities and so on, I mean, there's very 
uh, wide adoption of essentially digital transactions for most things anyways. Now, there's still cash somewhere. Right. I guess maybe the first thing to talk about is what's the distinction between, say, a credit card yeah. or uh, Apple Wallet or Android Pay, which is like a sort of digitized way of carrying your credit card or accessing it. Um, what's the difference between those things and a digital currency? Because they're not the same, right? Yeah, no, I, exactly. We should we should definitely draw that distinction. Okay. So, I, I mean, I would say that um, because we're not in a fully, you know, digitized world with, for, as, with regards to currency at the moment. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're not is because, you know, you have some numbers in an account that you can look up, but you can turn those numbers into actual physical dollars at the request of your bank. Mm-hmm. Right. At some point in the chain, you can go and exchange those, you know, imaginary numbers into real cold, hard bills. Yeah. Um, in a fully digitized currency world, that would not be the case. Right. Everything would be purely digital. There would have to be um, official ledgers somewhere that were making sure that uh, more money wasn't being created than is supposed to be created. Right. Um, and. And so those would have to exist, but there, at no point in the chain would there be anything like a physical dollar bill. So like the defining feature of like a traditional money then is a physical token, right? Yes. Like some kind of like a bill or a coin or something, mm-hmm. right? That represents the money. And then the defining feature of like a digital currency is an official record, right? It's like some kind of a ledger or record or database of some kind that is authoritative that tells you where the money is that sounds right yeah right i mean i think it could be designed any number of ways it could look any number of ways but you have to have that because you don't have these physical things to prove you know i have a dollar or whatever right and a cryptocurrency is one solution to that ledger problem right but it's certainly not the only one. Well, and it was it had a, a goal an ideological goal of making sure that that ledger was decentralized in some way right right but we can problematize that whole decentralized concept pretty right easily but well, that was yeah. the theory yeah the yeah. people who made bitcoin mostly meant not owned by a government or a single corporation right and in that on that level by that definition of decentralized they have succeeded i think you can argue that in other ways it is it is Still centralized and it's still kind of impossible to not have something central in a currency but uh yeah that seems right it seems like uh there has to be some kind of a record whether or not it's a centralized record in order for a digital currency to work and as a record keeper a government certainly makes a lot of sense obviously that would you know upset the uh the Bitcoin enthusiasts that, you know, are dreaming of a libertarian paradise where there is no government involved in the currency. But uh, the world we live in is one, you know, of fiat currencies that are created by governments. And it seems to me like that's not likely to change. I mean, one of the reasons that I don't have um, strong hopes for cryptocurrencies is that, you know, at the end of the day, governments can just say, nope, I don't think so. I think this should be run by us. Um, and so they would have to, the government would probably maintain in most digital currency scenarios that I can imagine actually coming to pass, the government would have to maintain these records and probably have banks as well that are licensed to ma- helping to maintain these records in some sort of organized fashion. Right, right. So the way that the government makes the physical dollars now, which is its equivalent of keeping a record because it doesn't actually keep a, a total record 
is by yeah like farming that out to a series of mints and banks what have you um to to create money both digitally and physically uh for the system and that's the thing is that the government has so much fiscal power in the current system and i can't imagine that they would ever go to a bitcoin like um system in which they have no fiscal power whatsoever and as we talked about way back in our money episode you know some of that fiscal power is used at least the the argument for it is it's you know it's used to help sort of modulate the economy right and to you know control various variables like the level of unemployment and the level of inflation and the amount of liquidity in the economy and you know basically the rate of growth yeah, yeah in in an mm-hmm. attempt to you know steer us away from you know cyclical recessions now you know you can argue over whether it does a good job of that or whether that whole theory is good or not right uh, there's a lot of differing opinions on this whole idea of monetary theory and i don't want to get into those weeds right 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 we'll skip over that we don't know whether it def- definitely works or not but we know that it has been done but that's the theory and yeah. and arguably you would expect that there might be some advantages to having some some centralized levers over the currency um you know i mean i get i guess the downside the reason you might want not that people don't want a government involved in their currency is they don't want it to be trackable but that also can be an upside depending on whether how you feel about it okay right? so what you mean is that right like cash is extremely hard to trace sure um, it doesn't have any record of who's had it, like the dollar bill doesn't. Uh, but because of the way that um, digital currencies rely on some kind of a ledger or record-keeping uh, thing, it's natural in those things to basically keep a traceable record of you know everywhere each dollar goes for its entire existence, mm-hmm. um, which could allow the government, if it's running the system, which it almost certainly would be, to... Uh, surveil people uh, after the fact through an extremely, you know, commonly used medium. Um, So, yeah, there's, I think that's a big reason not to trust the government uh, to be the central arbiter. Um, I think the people who made Bitcoin also don't trust the government because they, you know, are of the opinion that government spending is waste, basically, I think. I think they think that government running the currency just gives the government too much sure so they might, they might not agree with uh, various policies of the government in terms of their spending and right. their, their monetary control yeah right um so you know whether you think the government should be uh, relatively larger or smaller it's very common with modern uh societies to have some kind of fiscal power um vested in the government through something like a central bank um, there's different structures for how it works. But, yeah, and it seems you know. like to me like a relatively smooth path from our world now to a world in the near future where we have a fully digital currency that is controlled by the government in the way we're describing. And that path to me seems a lot smoother than the path that gets us from here to wide adoption of some sort of international cryptocurrency right right it's hard to imagine even if the crypto really took off in usage among people that the government wouldn't just essentially take it over um either by passing some kind of law or prohibiting it or otherwise now um, they could adopt some features of the blockchain technology 
mm-hmm. um, if they found it useful to do so. Right. And I know you looked into this a little bit because there is a country doing that, right? Well, kind of, yeah. So the, the country of Venezuela um, has recently been the first country to announce a sort of uh, government-run cryptocurrency. Uh, they're calling it the Petro, and they're saying that it's backed by uh, the price of oil. Um, it's a pretty unique situation. I think, you know, uh, Venezuela is a hard place to talk about because it's hard for us here in the U.S. to even get real information about what's going on there. Sure. So I'll just say I'm no expert and I have no particular ideological opinion about either the people in charge there or the um, the opposition people, but I know that there's like bitter fighting there and uh, severe political op- uh, opposition and um, the country's in a real tough shape, partially because of international sanctions against it. Uh, so they're trying to get around the fact that they have a really hard time raising money, uh, but they have material wealth. Uh, they have oil and, and what, what have you in the country. So they're trying to get around that by implementing this uh, cryptocurrency, which does have a blockchain and which is um, sort of pseudo-open, but they have features of it that effectively make it a centralized currency. So one feature of it is that it's it's tied to the price of oil, but not the worldwide price of oil, the price of Venezuelan oil, which the Venezuelan government can set. So that essentially, it's their their pricing mechanism is one step removed, and then the government can can set it. Um, and then the other thing that makes it not really a cryptocurrency, I don't think is the fact that they are what they're calling pre-mining all of the coins. So they're basically, the government is going to produce all of the coins. There won't be like a mining network um, responsible for producing the tokens. Uh, So the government has basically taken the decentralized aspect of of Bitcoin and centralized that one part of it, uh, thereby creating what's essentially just a new... um, a new reserve currency that they're going to try to trade for foreign reserves uh, and back with their material wealth sort of directly. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether this will work or not as like a fiscal stimulus in Venezuela. I think that's just a really complex question that has to do with how international actors react and whether sanctions and other kinds of things work. And um, also there's issues of political corruption there that I'm not very well versed on. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of open questions here as to whether this works, but I think it's an interesting example of what governments will do when they make uh, a digital currency is that they might use cryptocurrency as like a buzzword, but essentially they're going to make it a centralized digital currency. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid, but it's, you know, it's, it's less crypto than it maybe it pretends to be. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, what I can ima- definitely imagine, let's maybe sketch this out. What could happen, right? Sure. So I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I go to pay for things, like I already have vendors just sort of assuming I'm going to pay with credit or debit um, and not cash already. So we, we already so have... So by a digital means, but not with a digital yeah. currency. Right. So we already have an increasing number of transactions that happen fully digitally, even though our currency is not fully digital yet. So I think that trend is going to continue. Um, and what we're missing right now are a few things that would make uh, digital transactions truly seamless. Um, a, a few things have changed actually recently. I know that um, credit card companies are going to stop having you sign at all soon. 
Um, they've already kind of taken that requirement off for um, small transactions, as you may have noticed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I heard that they're going to start phasing that out completely. It basically doesn't really do any serve any security purpose. Right. Um, so in Europe, they've gone to chip and pin, yeah. which is a better system. And here they screwed up and they went to chip and signature, which is uh, useless. Yeah. 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 But uh, basically, that's what you want to do is keep removing those sort of obstacles that make the transaction not quite seamless. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, a situation in the near future where, you know, you just use your phone and you just, your phone that does everything else for you is the only thing you really have to carry with you. You don't really need your wallet and you can just sort of swipe your phone or something and it basically handles the payment in, in the least painless way possible. We're not quite there yet, but we can definitely see the steps getting us there. Right. I mean, there's things that approximate that now if you use um, like Android or Apple Pay, mm -hmm. um, uh, but they are multi-layered. So like you're paying with your phone, which is accessing your credit card w or debit card, which is then drawing on a real currency account, you know, mm -hmm. and there's delays and fees and uh, opportunities for trouble and all of those steps. Um, I guess we could mention Venmo too as something that's you know, and then right people are Venmo or Square or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, for paying each other for small, you know, cash interactions. Right, which I just like. I am just waiting for the government to decide that it needs to tax everybody for all the twenty dollars they've given their friends forever. You know, <laughs> um, so like creating records of that makes me paranoid in the way that I guess you know drug dealers and pornographers and stuff are paranoid about the federal government well that is know. taxable i mean actually on my taxes i reported my you know the my venmo payments that i got that were part of business and not just you right know, a friend paying me half of a meal right exactly right? so yeah i mean so it already falls under tax law right and that's the thing is that you just figure well if my friend was paying me back for half of a meal you know i just don't need to report that and probably you never get looked at so it's fine but um you know, if you got audited, you'd have to explain every one of those um, and, you know, be able to prove them or something. Actually, I'm glad you brought up taxes, right? Because yeah. this would be so. OK, so imagine it as the world is getting more and more uh, focused on these digital transactions and the, the digital transactions are getting easier and easier to the point that pretty much almost everybody uses them all the time. And you hardly ever see dollar bills because people don't even bother to carry them on them because they're just a hassle. Right. Right. On top of that, there are huge benefits potentially to going fully digital with the currency, one of which potentially could be paying your taxes, right? Now, this is maybe a little more far-fetched because expecting the government to clean up the tax system is maybe uh, too much to hope for. Right. Well, considering how needless most of it, the complexity currently is. But yeah. in theory, it would right. be cool. Uh -huh. I mean, I mean, again, certain people would be horrified by this obviously but depending on how you feel about government in general it could be actually quite convenient to not really have to do your taxes at all and just have maybe you check the work that is done to make sure that you're not being ripped off you know um and make sure you're getting you know certain certain benefits or whatever but uh you know a lot of it could be made more seamless if they just sort of sucked up that data like automatically yeah, I could see this particularly making um, sales tax reporting and payment much easier for for merchants. I mean, another reason that we might move towards this system is sort of what we alluded to earlier, which is that the oh. trackable nature of it is something that, again, might freak out certain people, but that the governments themselves will want. 
and can be sold to the people as a, you know, as a benefit, you know, as a way to, to crack down on crime. Right. So that's like, again, I'm sort of interested in how, right. How Think do, of the children. Yeah. Yeah. How do we make this transition? I mean, it might just never happen is the thing. I mean, we might just continue to have dollar bills everywhere. Um, well, we're already getting fewer and fewer dollar bills um, corresponding to the actual money in the system, right? Yeah. That's already a thing because of fractional reserve banking, because there's just so much of money is created as debt in an account somewhere. Um, so and, there's a multiplier on top of the, the bills. Right. And that's just the way our system works. I don't see that going anywhere. I don't actually think that's a problem because you can change the multiplier and that changes how hot, you know, how much money is in the system, which gives the, the government a, a useful lever. Um, that's how it is now. At some point, you can imagine there being just like an extremely small amount of cash. Like they joked during the um, the the budget uh, uh, showdown during the Obama years that they could like mint a trillion dollar coin. Remember this joke? And it was like, you know, it was never totally clear whether you could really do that. You could like mint a, tr- a trillion dollar coin and then deposit it in the U.S. Treasury and then, you know, we'd have money. Um, so you could, you could imagine that the mint might mint a, uh, you know, hundred million dollar coin and, uh, deposit it in the bank. And then that's all the cash. And then all the, Oh, or, or this is a, this is like, it never circulates. It's just like take money out of circulation. Yeah. yeah, But there's still a physical analog somewhere. There's like, yeah, there's like literally like a coin with George Washington's head on it made of like, you know, pure platinum, but just one just like sitting under a spotlight somewhere where you can like go and look at it if you want. And like, that's all the cash and that, you know, it's, it's $4 trillion. It's the, it's the size of the U S economy or something. I don't know. I'm making up numbers, but the the important thing isn't the number. It's just like, it, it it's just the token that, that backs the or you whole country. You could have them in money. million dollar increments. I mean, or whatever. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just imagining million, yeah. the most sort of absurdly visual <laughs> version of it. But yeah, absolutely. You could just have, you know, some small amount of high value currency. Um, that's just sort of the way they used to carry, uh, have gold at Fort Knox in case, you know, just to sort of let everyone know that the government had gold. It wasn't because they thought anyone was ever going to go and get their gold. It was purely just like a, uh, like a, a way of backing the currency by by promulgating out the idea that like the government's rich enough, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to back your money. And then if people believe it, they use the money and the money works. So this would be the same thing. It would just be like, well, the government's committed to, you know, backing the currency. So here's your proof of that. So go use the currency. But it, it never actually, it only gets circulated as, you know, numbers in an account. Well, and you could do that gradually as a way to sort of take bills out of circulation. Right. Well, and that's something that I'm surprised we haven't done more of, right? I mean, one argument that we will never get there is why do we have pennies? Yeah, this has been talked about forever. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's already some great videos on YouTube if you want to see people ranting about getting rid of the penny. It's obviously dumb. But, uh, you know, we haven't done it. So it, it shows that maybe we're not going to actually make this change after all. Yeah, there may just be too much... Uh, momentum on the side of just keeping things as they are and just having a very gradual uh, erosion of of cash usage to the point where it's uh, uncommon but we're still just like producing pennies for no reason (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean i think 
if, if I would make, I would probably rank my predictions somewhat like in this order, right? Probably, okay. probably most likely is that we just muddle through with cash still on the table. Mm-hmm. And maybe eventually we take some of it out of circulation, you know, or just sort of naturally drifts out of circulation because people aren't really ever withdrawing it from banks or using it. Mm-hmm. So it sort of piles up in banks, but it's not out on the streets. Right. Right. And maybe we even eventually do the penny thing, right? I mean, at a certain point, right, when a when a movie costs twenty dollars, like as it practically does now, I mean, why are we carrying pennies? But you know, we'll see. Uh, so th- I would rank that though as my most likely possibility. The second most likely would be we get so comfortable paying for things digitally, and there are certain advantages that the government can see and that maybe it can sell to its constituents you know, regarding traceability and, and cracking down on crime and so on. Yeah. Paying taxes more easily, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that get us to a government-backed digital currency. And a distant third would be some kind of cryptocurrency paradise where, you know, Bitcoin is, becomes something other than just a place to invest in a volatile uh, market. So, I mean, that's kind of, is that how you would see it too? Yeah, I find the scenario where Bitcoin becomes like the world's currency or something highly improbable. And I guess I could imagine a fourth scenario that I would place as slightly more likely than that and less likely than the government just doing it, which is that some um, company or consortium of companies that are fairly respectable, you know, maybe MasterCard or something like that is in in a position to do this. Um, manages to design a digital currency that balances what the government wants with what people think they want and is able to become like a sort of state-sponsored monopoly slash single middleman, you know, a Google of money or something. And I could kind of imagine that happening. I could kind of imagine in like maybe you stop paying your Visa card in money. Mm-hmm. And you start getting your paycheck directly put on your Visa card. And I guess theoretically there's like a currency somewhere, but you never see it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then maybe a a next step from there is Visa creates like internal Visa points and they basically convince the government that this should be the money, you know? Right, right. Um, I could sort of see that happening. So that's that's my fourth scenario that I can imagine privatized digital currency being uh, tacitly or officially supported by the government. Right. And I guess within that, you know, possibility, I mean, because again, the the idea that one of these would become cryptocurrencies would become the dominant currency seems far fetched. Yeah. But I mean, you could have various governments depending on their frame of mind, you know, taking a more or less laissez faire attitude towards, you know, having many cryptocurrencies out there. Obviously we have several out there, there's more every day. Um, and so for the time being, that's being allowed to, to function. But I think also there's very little reason for the government to be concerned about them at this point. Right. But, uh, you know, they're constantly rumbling about doing something about it. Yeah. I think if the government actually attacks them, that will be a sign that they're doing better than I am expecting them to do. I right. think they're going to do poorly enough that governments won't care. Um, but if we start to see governments like really cracking down on digital on uh, cryptocurrencies, then I think that means that they are in danger of succeeding. Um, but uh, but I still think the governments are very powerful, and if they coordinate at all, they could easily s- just stop them um, from being used. I mean, in in 
any but the most uh, underground, illegal sort of circles, you know. In those circles, it's likely that some version of cryptocurrency will just continue to be a sort of currency of thieves for, you know, forever because they don't really have a lot of other options. Digital currency is very bad for them. Um, so if you're doing any kind of international crime, I think you're highly motivated to, uh, to keep at least one cryptocurrency alive enough that you can do your crime and, uh, and right. get so, in and out of, of So, I mean, you can imagine them existing and flourishing in, you know, in, in criminal circles and... You yeah, know, they may not be completely... Um, but they're, you know, they're... Destroyable o- there. Officially, yeah, exactly. As we've talked about, it's very hard to ban technologies. Right. So... Um, but if it's officially illegal, you know, that's a pretty, that's a huge obstacle to it being adopted on any kind of large non-criminal scale. Right. It makes um, it hard to fence your, your Bitcoin, basically. I mean, you know, to get it in and out of the system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but that feels like, you know, within the within the realm of likelihood. Now, if we go to a state backed at to sort of wrap this up, right? Yeah. Like, so let's say we go to the, what we think is maybe the second most likely option, mm-hmm. which is that we do make a transition to fully digitized currency. Because but the government says so basically. Yeah. It's the state, same, uh, government backed fiat currency that we have. It's just fully digital. Well, I mean, what is, does that change the world very much or do we just kind of get there gradually and it doesn't really feel that different? Well, uh, so if the government um, decides not to surveil you through the currency, then it barely changes the world at all, right? I mean, it might reduce people's overall confidence in the currency, but I doubt it because I think that has much more to do with just, you know, how much inflation do we let to have happen and things like that. Um, I can't imagine... What else it would... I don't know. What do you think it would do? No, I mean, I think that the really only fundamental difference is the is the traceability. Right. You know, it it it, uh, it puts a lot of power in the government's hands, so, which is potentially bad if you don't trust your government, but it's good if you think that they're going to use it to, say, you know, police, uh, you know, criminal behavior or tax evasion. So let's say they put it in and they partner it with a sophisticated pattern matching AI... Mm-hmm. that monitors every transaction in real time. Well, and some version of this happens already, right? In various places. I sure. Mean, I mean, they're already, they're already doing this to some extent with some banks and with some credit cards and things mm-hmm. like that. Right. But this just allows them to get much closer to the source and literally just every transaction they can, they can trace it. So, you know, that could basically eliminate, um, the traditional payment options for a lot of kinds of crime. Um, and it could also expose people, uh, to any number of, um, you know, sort of privacy violations that you might think of, uh, about their identity or about their politics, about their business, you name it. Um, if that data is, you know, gets out or is misused or is, um, uh, used uh, again, but again, it feels like we're already in. in it's just one more vector of this type, in that right? world now, right? Yeah. So, and how different is it from pervasive video surveillance, pervasive audio surveillance, um, pervasive text records of communications? These are all similar. It's just another vector. 
uh, by which we we assume privacy will die. <laughs> right, right. Essentially, it's another disease uh, killing off privacy. Which is why it is really important to to have governments we can trust. I mean, you know, that really is the core of you know whatever problems you might have with this. Again, in in the hands of a actually good government that you know follows the rule of law and is relatively fair and democratic it's not such a bad thing yeah again you can and by good you can also say i think you could also substitute the word limited right like an appropriately limited government that can't that doesn't give itself the power to do every possible thing with this data that could be done uh is not very scary but given the actual government that we actually have and how it is oftentimes neither good nor limited um i guess it's a little worrying the design of the digital money protocol that would have to exist in order for people to you know accept and make payments with this artificial currency um would determine a lot right right right. so you could you could design it in a way that uh, was more or less anonymous that gave more or less access to people um, so I think, you know, that would definitely be was something more or less physically centralized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you could certainly advocate for certain values like privacy in the design of this currency from the beginning. And I think that would obviously, if it ever came to, to this kind of transition, those would be important things maybe to fight for. Yeah, I think people would fight for them. But again, I feel like the incentive of the government is so strongly to, uh, reduce those things to uselessness that, that I, I just find it hard to believe that the government would go along with that. Yeah, normatively, it would be nice if uh, yeah. it was. It was no, I, I, yeah, I'd if it was designed, that. you know, with with privacy and and civil liberties in mind. Uh, but yes, I share your your skepticism that the government's going to voluntarily give up surveillance powers that it could have. Yeah, I don't see that happening. So I think that, you know, is it going to be a disaster? No, I think it's going to be just another step down the road of like, you know, us getting to the point where our um, our surveillance technology is such that we have to rationalize our laws. Otherwise we're going to end up in a, you know, dystopian state because you're just going to know everything, every dollar somebody gave to their friend, you're going to know about it. And we're just going to have to start allowing that. All right. Well, should we wrap there? Yeah, I think we should wrap it okay. up. Okay. Until next time. I'm Ted Covert. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to view the future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.